places to begin with. Revelation 6 and Isaiah 40. If you're fortunate like me to have a Bible with two uh, bookmarks, then you can mark them with your bookmarks. We're going to pick up where we left off in our series on the book of Revelation. We had uh, read the first two seals, if you remember, in the judgments of God. And Lord willing, we'll look at the third and fourth seals this morning. So that will be verses 5 through 8 of Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And I looked and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And a power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Before we look at our text now, let's flip back to Isaiah 40. It's good when we read passages like this to remember God's perspective on the earth. As we're going to see, particularly from the passages this morning, uh, this, this world is really a frail place. The governments, the economies, the societies, including the United States. We don't like to think about that. But it's very true. Here in Isaiah 40, we see the earth from God's viewpoint. Look at verse 15. God is speaking and he says this, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the balance. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Verse 21, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Majestic statements by God. Uh, Maybe you've heard the expression applied to the earth, a big blue marble. Well, that's a blue marble. It's not very big. But it's good to remember God's perspective of the earth. You know, we tend to think of this planet as so permanent, so big, so safe. 
And yet to God, this marble is, is oversized, really. You know, a grain of sand would probably be better, or a speck of dust. But you wouldn't be able to see those, so I decided to use a blue marble. But the point is, uh, the whole earth really is in God's hands all the time. And it's because of His mercy and His grace that it continues to revolve at a rate of 24 hours per day and go around the sun at a period of 365 and roughly a quarter days every year. Just the grace of God that it continues to do that. It's not because of some uh, irreversible laws of nature. It's because God causes it to do so. And yet, uh, in the last days, there will come a time when this little blue marble is not going to seem so stable. Well, he's going to judge the earth. And it's going to be a terrible time. It's called the tribulation. It's uh, what we're reading about here in the book of Revelation. He uses phrases to describe the earth during that time of judgment in the Old Testament. Uh, at one point he says that the earth will reel to and fro like a drunken man. Another place he says, yet again, and I will shake the earth. Imagine. I will shake the earth. It's trivial for him, really, just with a breath, to throw this to us huge orb uh, out of kilter, to tweak it, so to speak. And that's what he's going to do, to tweak. Yeah, tweak. That's Norman's going, tweak? We use that expression a lot in computer science. It means to adjust slightly. Yeah. So far... Uh, in the history of the earth, besides the flood, disasters have been near misses. We talked about this in a previous message. Earthquakes, floods, you know, we've had some tremendous catastrophes. And yet, really, God in his grace to this point has, has not, for example, uh, completely destroyed like New York or Los Angeles. Even in the fire and earthquake of San Francisco, there were very few deaths, comparatively speaking. But... Uh, there's going to come a time when they aren't going to be near misses. And they're not near misses, by the way, because he aimed, you know, and missed. They were very carefully designed to be near misses as warnings. In fact, uh, in one of the articles recently I read about uh, the near misses of the asteroids almost hitting the Earth, you've heard about that, of course. Uh, the title of one of the articles was A Shot Across Earth's Bow. I like that. You know what that is? That's an expression. Uh, it's an old nautical term. It's what one ship would do to another to warn it. It wouldn't fire directly on the ship, but it would fire a warning shot across the bow. And that's what the author of this article described, the near miss of the asteroid that almost hit the earth. And he was right, except he didn't ascribe the warning shot to God, but that's where it came from. So far, they've been warning shots. And yet, it is so trivial for God to begin with direct hits. And they're going to be one after the other. That's the point in the tribulation. In fact, we see here, it's horrible. It's incomprehensible to me, a quarter of the world's population will die in the fourth seal. One-fourth. 1.5 billion people. Just uh, to show you how vulnerable we really are, uh, I went on the web and, and looked up some national emergency response and relief organizations and their appraisals of world disasters. Three years ago, the world spent about $28.8 billion on world disasters. The year after that, it was 50, and last year it was 100 billion. 
That's interesting. But these are nothing compared to what it's going to be in the tribulation. Now, just to get a handle on this, let me tell you that it would, it would be trivial for God to reduce the earth to bankruptcy with national disasters. Do you realize that? So easy. We think somehow, you know, Hurricane Gilbert, you know, the uh, Loma Prieta earthquake, we seem to somehow just have the money to recover. These are near misses. For an example, the uh, Hurricane Andrew, that, that's the biggest one we've had, cost $22 billion. Just a few hours, in a, within a few hours of devastation, God cost his country $22 billion. And it was down in an obscure part of Florida. The uh, Northridge earthquake, $25 billion. Just a few seconds of shaking in a remote community. It wasn't even downtown L.A. And if you've seen the pictures, most of the uh, buildings were still left standing. It wasn't that big of an earthquake compared to what God could do. And it doesn't take uh, a rocket scientist to figure out that just like in a family's uh, budget, you have so much to spend on different things. And if your income is, uh, you know, $50,000 a year, if you end up spending $50,000 on car repairs, you're not going to have anything left over to eat with. Well, you see, that is what God can and will do with the world. Uh, just to uh, give you a number to work with, the, there's an there's a, uh, economic number that the national disaster people work with when they talk about the effect of a disaster on a country. It's called the GDP. Gary knows what that is, probably. It's the gross domestic product. It's the measure of the wealth of a country that year. It's, it's basically the, the sum total of all the um, created goods by that country. And that's the number that's used by these guys to figure out if a country can afford to pay for their disasters. And uh, they, they have a figure. Right now, roughly the whole world's GDP, gross domestic product, is about $40,000 billion. The U.S., interestingly enough, by the way, accounts for a fourth of that. $10,000 billion. Now, these relatively small disasters I talked about, they were around $25 billion. And yet they realized that if there were to be a large earthquake, I mean, you know, eight, nine, in downtown L.A., and they realized that that's very possible. It could happen in New York. It can happen anywhere. That was one of the interesting things about the Northridge earthquake. They found out that we can have an earthquake anywhere. Before that, uh, seismologists always thought that, you know, there are these known faults, like the San Andreas Fault or the Calaveras Fault, and that's where earthquakes take place. And at Northridge, they couldn't find the fault. They looked deep underground and found out that there are these, uh, they're called hidden faults everywhere throughout the world. And they looked under L.A., and sure enough, there were tons of them down there. And they realized that if there were a big one, 8-9, in downtown L.A., it would, it would be hundreds of uh, times the devastation of Northridge. You're, ta you're getting up into... Uh, hundreds of billions, if not thousands of billions of dollars of repairs for one event. You see, it would just take a few events to break the United States budget. That's scary, isn't it? We're that vulnerable. We're that fragile. And, and you understand, I think even Christians, we tend to think of hurricanes and floods and fires and uh, earthquakes and these kind of disasters. They're kind of random, you know. 
That was a close one. Could have been a lot worse. These are carefully designed by God, right down to the individuals, by the way, within them, and who suffers and who doesn't. And just as surely as he has aimed his warning shots, the, the time is going to come when the warning time is over. He will take his church to be with himself, and then we'll start marking down the last seven years of the earth where he is going to methodically judge the earth with direct hit after direct hit. And it's a very small thing for him to reduce not just this country, but the whole world to chaos. And that's something I've said before, and I want you to remember that because it's something that doesn't come out a lot in the Christian books and films. They, they tend to portray the tribulation as a time where basically people continue doing the same old thing. You know, corporations are operating, you go to the store, communications is still there, you watch your TV and there's CNN news and all that stuff. It's not going to be like that. With these kind of things going on throughout the world, the infrastructure is going to be shot. It's going to be a place of chaos. And I believe we see that in the second seal, where it says God removes peace from the earth that men should kill one another. That's not war, that's anarchy. That's what happens when the world gets like that. We saw it in Rwanda between the Hutus and the Tutsis. We saw it in uh, Yugoslavia between the Bosnians and the Muslims and the Serbs and uh, the Croatians and the Slovaks and all the others. It's a terrible, terrible time. We think of war. You know, war is kind of clean where you have these guys in uniforms that go out and, you know, they're designated. They're the ones that go out and get killed. And the people stay at home nice and safe. That's not what it's like in anarchy. It's not the guys in the uniform. It's you and me. And that's the way it was in Rwanda. Neighbors killing neighbors. Friends killing friends. In Bosnia, Herzegovina. It's, it's horrible. It's the most fearful uh, kind of situation to live in. And it's still going on in various nations around the world. That's what it's going to be like. And you add to the removal of the restrainer, where God is not going to hold back the evil intents of men anymore, so that when your neighbor might have thought before of hating you and doing something to harm you, now you'll do it. Compelled by the fact that people are going to be starving, there are going to be these disasters happening around the world, bang, 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 one after the other. The pressure is going to be tremendous. And human society is not going to be, you know, when you put your bed on your pillow tonight, if the Lord tarries between now and then, just thank God right now that we will not be in the tribulation, brothers and sisters. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time. One of the main things you see God is going to make clear is that He is God. That's not acknowledged right now, is it? When he talked to Pharaoh uh, before the plagues of Egypt, before he blasted that country, he said, they will know that I am the Lord. And they did when he got done. Right now, God is pushed off in a corner. He doesn't exist in most people's minds. They don't want him around. And he's going to come back on the scene and say, here I am. And it's going to be undeniable. And when we get to the sixth seal, finally they're going to admit it. But it's going to take six seals before people on the earth finally acknowledge that this is the hand of God. They don't do that right now, do they? I remember the Loma Prieta earthquake. And uh, the, maybe the Bay Bridge fell apart. All kind of terrible things. And interview after interview of, of community leaders, from the mayor of San Francisco to the mayor of Oakland, you know, no mention of God. No mention of sin or possibly the judgment of God. That would be so politically incorrect right now, wouldn't it? You know, it was always, uh, we're going to recover, you know. We've got it together. We can handle it. 
Look at us. Well, look how great we are. It sounds like the Tower of Babel if you look at it, really. We can do it together. But you see, in God's grace, they've been near misses. That's why we can continue to say things like that and pretend God's not in it. But in the tribulation, you see, the clock's going to stop and he's going to say, no, here I am. And you can't avoid it. And we're going to see that after the sixth seal. The people throughout the world are going to ignore This is the hand of God around us. So keep that in mind as we go through these passages. And as you think about the end times or if you see movies or read books, um, it's not going to be business as usual on planet Earth. Anywhere. Okay. Um, let's go ahead now. If you've got your finger in Revelation, we'll go back there. Remember, as I said, the first seal uh, was the one who uh, had a bow and a crown. And he went forth to conquer, and we said that is probably the Antichrist. And the reason for the bow is probably the idea that it's a bow without arrows and that he is able to conquer by treaty. This is characteristic of him in other places in Scripture. For example, Daniel 9, um, it says that he makes a treaty or makes a covenant. Uh, there are other passages that say that kings give him their power. So these kind of inferences coupled with the bow seem to indicate that at the beginning he is able to take power over other countries with really not firing a shot. And, and that's probably why just the bow. Then, uh, as I said, the second seal was, um, I believe that's anarchy. Because of the way it's worded, it doesn't use the word war. It describes really anarchy. He takes peace from the earth. The people should kill one another, like Bosnia or Rwanda. Then we came to the third seal, which we read this morning. And uh, it really, if you have the, the heading famine in your Bible, it's not quite correct. It's really scarcity at this point. Famine doesn't come until the fourth seal. But uh, we're going to have all kinds of words in our Bibles now for uh, the monetary unit and for the measure of wheat. Some of you may have measure of wheat. For denarius, you may have a coin, you may have a penny, you may have other things. But it's real simple. We can boil it down in, in terms that we can understand this way. He's saying, in my version, it says a quart of wheat for a denarius. The measure of the wheat there is enough to feed one person for one day. Okay, that's, it's a measure of wheat. So you'd have enough to make bread for one person for one day to live on. And the denarius there, or whatever the, the coin is that you have, in those days, it was one day's wages. So now imagine going to work, and you work eight hours, or ten, as the case may be, and in that day, you've earned enough, just enough to put food on the table for that day for one person. Can't go very long like that, can you? And we're, and, we're, and we're not talking about a filling meal. We're talking about bread. And we're not talking about all the other pressing needs in our family budgets. So uh, if you don't want the stuff that's, that's as good as wheat, barley is, is not as, as good. In those days, particularly, it was, it was a lot cheaper. He says you can get three measures of barley. So there you could feed three people with one day's wages. So you work five days and you got enough to feed three people for five days. I don't know what you can do about the weekend. And this isn't a filling meal, you see. Now, it's not clear uh, how God is, is going to bring about this scarcity. Apparently, he's going to do something to the wheat and barley crops around the world. 
and uh, he doesn't say how. The interesting thing is this phrase at the end, uh, he says, do not harm the oil and the wine. Um, commentators speculate, what in the world does that mean? I believe it simply is talking about the selectivity of his judgment. God is so selective and careful in his judgment, always. And he's saying, we're going to affect the wheat and the body, but right now we're not going to touch the oil and the wine. How could he, how could he do that? Well, God could do it a myriad of ways. Remember now, okay, where's my marble? This is what we're talking about here. This is a small thing for God to do. You know, really, he could wipe, he could wipe, <laughs> he could smash it right now. You see, but you see, God has many purposes to accomplish in the seven years of judgment, which is going to finally culminate in the, in the return of the Lord Jesus in glory. One of them is, we, we said it from uh, Exodus, in the judgments of, of Pharaoh, the same thing here. They will know that I am the Lord. That's important to him. He's going to accomplish that. Secondly, he's judging the earth. Remember, he hates sin. And he has been putting up with an awful lot for a long time. And his patience is going to run out. But finally, he is bringing people to repentance. And we need to remember that. And that's why he doesn't wipe it out all at once. You see. In his grace and in his mercy... He's going to step up the judgments, but he's not going to just completely destroy everything because there are going to be a few who are going to be saved during those days. And that's what it's going to take, by the way. And there's a, a graphic picture of this process of how, if you think about it, God is, is going to uh, squeeze out, if you will, the last few people who are going to be saved. And you know what the illustration is? It's a wine press. Later in this book, the Lord Jesus is called the one who treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That's the description of the Lord Jesus. He treads out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. It's like you, you, you're squeezing the grapes and the juice is coming out and you're getting down. You know, you, you've got the, the uh, grapes pretty much squished and you're down to a trickle. Until the last person is saved, and then it's over. So that's the picture. It's like he's applying, applying a wine press, or, or his feet, really, to the earth to squeeze out those last few people who are going to be saved, and then that's it. So he begins slowly, and as, you, as you're going to see when we go through here, the, the uh, judgments pick up in intensity and in, in uh, frequency. So again, how does he uh, do this thing with the shortages on the wheat and the barley? Well, I remember, maybe uh, many of you who live here uh, remember too. Remember back in the 70s, the med fly? Remember that? Little white fly? Uh, it was so strange. All of a sudden, and, and apparently they traced it or they believe they, they found the source of somebody bringing in some fruit via uh, airplane from the Mediterranean. And it had in it, you know, a few of these little flies. And boy, were, were they ever um, fruitful, pardon the pun. They, they filled the whole bear, you remember? And it was so bad, I remember we got mailers in the mail telling us when to stay indoors because they were going to be flying over with helicopters spraying poison to try to get rid of these things. Do you remember that? It got that serious that they were spraying downtown areas and my house <laughs> with helicopters 
That was just a little warning shot from God, you see, to show what he can do. So we don't know how he could do it with climate. He, he has a number of things at his disposal, by the way. We're going to look at that when we get into the fourth seal. Climate, he could use disease, he could use pests, we don't know. But it's a small thing, a very small thing, you see, for him to turn the heat up, so to speak, on planet Earth. So it's going to be the scarcity of the, of the basics of, of our diet. And as, as we think about this, as we think about the judgments of God in the book of, tribula- uh, in the book of Revelation and during the tribulation, so many of them are linked with things that we take for granted. Things that we just expect to be there and to work. You know, in this case, the seasons and rain and our harvest. The whole world is so dependent upon annually harvesting so much food for us to eat. And we don't, no more do we think, praise God for giving us food to eat this year. Do we? There is so much in, the, in this world that God gives us day by day just the faithful, like I said, revolving of the earth and rotating around the sun that we take for granted. He is going to interrupt these things, you see. That's the point. And as you look at the cosmic disturbances and the things on the earth, I mean, the whole foundation is just going to start shaking. All the things we've been relying upon and His faithfulness and His mercy are going to stop. In a sense, the ground is going to be cut out from under us. And so it is with the uh, grain and the barley. It, it, today, we, uh, people say, well, it's nature. That's the word. That's the great all-encompassing term, isn't it? For uh, the regularity, the faithfulness of God in maintaining life on earth. It's going to stop. Okay, well, the fourth seal. One-fourth of the earth is going to be uh, hit with these four things. In mine, it says sword, hunger, death. Really, the uh, word there means uh, disease or pestilence and the beasts of the earth. One-fourth of the earth. Uh, that's about one and a half billion people. Now, before looking at them in detail, I want to note a couple of things. First of all, this is not the first place where these four uh, types of judgment occur together. In fact, it's very interesting that in the book of Ezekiel, they're listed together several times. And in fact, in one place, God refers to these four types of judgment. He calls them my four sore judgments. He talks about them like tools that he uses in judgment. Look at Ezekiel 14. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. He's warning the nation of Israel here through the prophet Ezekiel. And he has a little parenthesis here where he talks about these four judgments that he uses. And at the end, he's going to call them my four sore, or in my version today, he's going to say my four severe judgments. Ezekiel 14, verse 12, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by, notice, persistent unfaithfulness, 
I will stretch out my hand against it. Okay, there's, there's the introduction. And notice, first of all, by the way, his patience. He doesn't just say, when a land sins against me by unfaithfulness, he says persistent unfaithfulness. The idea being that it's been repeated over and over again. God has patiently waited for this land, whoever it is. In this case, he's talking about anybody. He's going to apply it to the nation of Israel. He says, but when they persistently are unfaithful to me, then I bring out my four sore judgments. He begins, I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. There's the first one, famine. Compare this with the list in Revelation 6. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, and there's a sermon right there, by the way, why did God choose these three men out of all the uh, men he could have chosen? Noah, Daniel, and Job, though they were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. He's saying when he gets to the point where he brings out these four sword judgments on a land, they are so corrupt, they are so far gone, that if these three righteous men were there living by example, teaching, preaching about God, it would be like Lot in Sodom. Nobody would listen. That's what he's saying. That's how far gone they are. If I cause wild beasts, that was in Revelation 6, remember, to pass through the land, and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered, and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword, back in Revelation 6 again, on that land and say, sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. What was the fourth one, remember? Pestilence, yeah. Or disease. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. Okay, back to Revelation. Isn't that interesting? And it's also back in uh, chapter 5. He talks about these four judgments. His four. And, and he, say, he calls them my four severe judgments. He is the one who uses them. used to be, I don't, I don't know how much it is true anymore, but uh, at least in insurance policies, they would at least use the phrase, act of God. You know, I think they're, they're, they're changing that phraseology to be something more active nature. Yes, that, that makes more sense nowadays. Okay. So this isn't the first time God has used these four, but this is the first time that he will use them worldwide. And even then, it's in a measured way. One-fourth. We would not be able to respond, right, Tom? One-fourth of the world dead. And can you imagine the accompanying devastation with it? I mean, the world is not going to be this nice, organized place that we think about. Okay, the other thing I want you to note here is uh, the wording. Very careful wording in the Word of God, always. 
Notice he says about uh, Hades and death, and power was given to them. Do you notice that? And you should, you, should, you should have picked up on that. It's in all of these uh, seals or something like it. Because it wasn't uh, the, the pale writer or any of the other writers who went out on their own did these things. It's a clear indication of the sovereignty of God. It is God who is doing these things. And it is God who gives the power of the authority or whatever is needed in each case, you see. Uh, if you look back, you see it in verse 2, verse 4. In verse 6, he's, you, you say, well, you don't see the word given or gave there. No, you don't have to. Because it's the Lord Jesus Himself speaking. Listen, verse 6, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. There's a voice in the midst. You know who that is talking? Look back at uh, chapter 5 and verse 6. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. The one who was in the midst of the creatures this is not one of the creatures. It's the Lord himself speaking. So there he directly says, isn't it? That's, if this is a fiat. This is a decree. He's saying it. One measure of wheat for a day's wages. He's saying that. And when he says it, it happens, you see. And in the other ones, it says it was given or uh, it, was gay, it gave. He gave it to them. The sovereignty of God. Okay, the third thing is, um, I'd love to get up here with charts and show you exactly when all these things take place in the tribulation. You'd think you'd be able to do that, wouldn't you? Let me tell you that, uh, we, okay, I'm not going to review the, the 70 weeks with you all. You all should be pretty familiar with that stuff by now. And the, the tribulation itself takes how long? Seven years. That's right. Seven years. When does the great tribulation begin? Right. Right in the middle. And it's going to last three and a half years. Okay? So we know that after the rapture of the church, uh, sometime after that will begin the Daniel's clock ticking and there will be seven years left for the nation. Remember, the, in, in all of this, God is interested once again in the nation of Israel. Isn't, isn't that wonderful? And, and they have seven years left. And half of that, uh, the last half is going to be the worst time. It's called the Great Tribulation. And I believe that there are as many estimates as to where these things fall in the Tribulation, Great Tribulation, as there are commentaries. And that makes sense. God has enough in here, uh, more than enough, to let us know, I don't want to be here. But, you know, he doesn't say, okay, now on February 22nd, you know, then we're going to start doing this. And so it's not exactly clear when the middle part is, when the Great Tribulation begins. Okay, so, but I can just tell you verbally now, I might mention it again later, that we're at one of the points where many commentators, for example, John Walford, many of you are familiar with him, godly man from Dallas, uh, his specialty is, uh, is uh, prophecy. He believes this is when the Great Tribulation begins right here in verse 7 with the fourth seal and this uh, one-fourth of the world being killed. And the reason he and many others believe that is because, first of all, if you're familiar with the other passages of the Scripture where he talks about the Great Tribulation, Jesus says in several places, it's a time such as the world has never seen, nor will ever see again. And this certainly fits that bill, doesn't it? Uh, one-fourth one of the world gone. The other uh, idea that they'll use, this is, this is weaker to me. In Daniel 9, if you remember, it says that the prince who is to come will make a covenant with many for one week. And he'll break that covenant in the middle of the week. And the indication there is that the first half, 
of the seven years is relatively peaceful. Whereas the last half, after he breaks the covenant, uh, there are all kind of words used there, abomination, desolation, terrible words, indicating that things are going to be terrible. Okay? And so he says, well, that, this, this is where it begins right here. To me, that's weak because really, Daniel 9 is talking about the nation of Israel. It's not talking about conditions worldwide. It's really emphasizing the nation of Israel. So, you can believe whatever you want. It's not critical. You're not going to live or die on what you believe, you know, where the great tribulation begins in the book of Revelation. But let me just quickly tell you that uh, many believe that it begins after the uh, seven seals. That's a good place because it's kind of a demarcation between the seals and the trumpets, you know. And there are terrible things in the trumpets. The other argument for that one is, if we had time, you're going to have to do it yourself. I, I was going to do it this morning. But Matthew 24, that's where the Lord talks about the end times. If you go through there and look at the catastrophes that he's going to, he talks about there taking place in the tribulation, there's a very close correspondence with the first six seals in order. It's not exact. It's close. Okay? Now, there's a problem with it, though, because... Um, Right at the very end, okay, and then he, and then he, after he talks about those ones that seem to correspond to the six seals, then he says, then when you see the image set up in the temple, as Daniel wrote, well, there we know that's the middle, right? And in fact, shortly after that, a few verses later, he says, then there will be great tribulation. He says that. Okay, well, it sounds like, wow, then it must be the first six seals, and then the great tribulation. Well, the problem is, that uh, right at the end of the Great Tribulation and just before his return, he talks about uh, the sun being darkened, the moon being turned to blood, uh, the, the heavens being shaken, uh, stars falling to earth. It sounds like the sixth seal. <laughs> and so, it's not clear how, how it fits together. It, it, that kind of breaks it there. And so, I believe God has left it just the way he did about the prophecies of the Lord Jesus. For those who looked at the Scripture before the Lord Jesus came, they couldn't exactly figure it out but there was more than enough to go on. After he came, we can now, though, look at the prophecies of Christ. They're clear as a bell, aren't they? And so it will be, I believe, in the, in the tribulation as well. Well, the third major place that many believe in the book of Revelation is the beginning of the great tribulation is chapter 11. To me, that seems kind of late. Uh, all you've got left there is the seven bowls. You've gone through the seven seals and the seven trumpets. But it's put there because Satan is cast out of heaven at that point and it's clear that he knows he only has three and a half years left. So there's that three and a half years, you see. So, okay, you can study that on your own. Come with your own conclusions. Just don't be dogmatic about it, okay? <laughs> okay, in the remaining time, then, I, wanna, I just want to think about these uh, four sore judgments when God brings them on the whole earth. The first one, he says, uh, to kill with the sword. And really, that harkens back to verse 4, if you remember, that people should kill one another with a sword. And as, again, as I said, I believe this is neighbor against neighbor. It's anarchy, it's genocide. This is not nice, neat guys, soldiers in uniforms way over there, you know, shooting at each other. This is the, this is the most terrible kind of death at the hand of another person. It's ordinary citizens being killed by ordinary citizens. Uh, PBS had a special on the... Um, Genocide in Rwanda. It's just terif terrifying to hear the story of this little girl who was in, in the village and they, the whole village got killed, her parents and everyone. And she, as she lay in the pile of bodies, she was still alive. They thought she was dead. 
She had a serious gash in her. And she looked and she recognized the guys that were doing it. They were, they were from her village. But they were from the other tribe, you see. And, and for 50 years, the animosity had laid there suppressed. They were neighbors. They were friends. They visited each other. They exchanged meals. And you see, it's all over the world. It still is. Animosity, it's lying there. It's raw material that God uses in His own time, as He did there. And all it takes is a spark. It's waiting to bust out. He doesn't have to make it happen. And in that case, all it took was a rocket fired at a, at a, a private plane with the leader of the country in it, who happened to be uh, a Hutu. He was killed. And uh, you combine that with the media of Rwanda, and then those are the guys that are being tried, by the way, by the uh, war crimes trials right now, because they got on the radio and they bombarded the waves saying, go out and kill all the Tutsis, exterminate them. So all it took was that one spark, a little bit of media, and at the end you have 800,000 people dead. That's almost a million people within one year dead. Neighbors killing neighbors. Now that's terrible, but it's a, it's a commentary on the human heart, you see. God let that break out. In Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Serbia, and so on, 200,000 people were killed. We don't know how many in Kosovo yet. For the same reason, it was, a, it was a, uh, a seething animosity that's been laying there for centuries. And the thing that really sparked it was probably the death of Tito, of all things. The great communist leader. I mean, he was, he was a bad guy, he was a communist leader, but at least he kept the country together, because whenever these ethnic uh, clashes would break out, he put them down with force. You see, he held the country together by force. And God in his time took Tito. And when he did that, it's like he took the lid off of Pandora's box. And, that, and that's why we see what is still going on today. So again, it's, and it's horrible. I, I, I don't want to scare you. I won't read any of the, of the uh, terrible tragedies, but there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of them, of families, uh, of just ordinary people being drugged out by ordinary people in those countries and killed. Second is famine. And we, we mentioned that in uh, the, the uh, third seal. It's really the end result of the scarcity that we saw back there. God is going to bring worldwide famine. We're used to thinking of famine. You know, well, that, that always, that's the thing that happens over in uh, North Africa or Central Africa. And it's terrible. Uh, the several hundreds of thousands of people again have died on a regular basis there uh, because of the droughts that will take place. But this is going to be worldwide. Anybody here know what the Dust Bowl was? Dust Bowl? Yeah. Oklahoma, that's right. Norman probably remembers it. Uh, we had it in this country. It lasted for years. The, the, uh, one of the places at the heart of the grain belt here in our country turned into a big... Thousands of miles of uh, dust. And there was nothing we could do. Absolutely nothing. We had to wait it out. It was the mercy of God that it ended. But when that first rain fell, there, were, there was rain falling from people's eyes, you know, as they wept for joy when the rain finally came. It's going to be a small thing. Remember that marble? It's going to be a small thing for God to bring that about. Death. Well, as I said, the word there in, really means pestilence or disease. And uh, in my previous message on this, you remember, I, I had a lot of articles that I, I cut out just in the last decade of diseases that have popped up that we never knew about, that we have no cure for, 
And this is on the heels of our complacency and our, and our self-sufficiency of the 50s and 60s. I remember uh, the proud announcements. You know, we, we just about conquered all the diseases. We've almost eradicated disease. You remember that? We were so confident. You take your little sugar cube and you got your salt vaccine and there you go. No more polio, you know. Boy, and we have just swung the other way now. Now we've got AIDS, the Ebola virus, which just had another outbreak, by the way, in Africa a few weeks ago. And it's horrible. I mean, these things are so bad. The, the caretake caregivers, they get in there and they're the first ones to die on the Ebola thing. You lose the doctors and the nurses within days. The mad cow disease. There's still no cures for these things. In fact, uh, the good old familiar three-letter uh, thing that we get every year and we're used to it, the flu. I don't know how many of you realize that the outbreak that first occurred in 1918-1919, right after World War I, it killed 30 million people worldwide. It killed 675,000 people in this country. And now you're thinking, oh, well, I mean, you know, we've advanced since then. No, we have not. The only reason we haven't had a repeat of that is because there has not been, as the medical people call it, a virulent strain yet. That's all. Each year, by God's grace, when the new version of flu comes out, and it's always different, it hasn't been a killer. But medical people worldwide are waiting for another outbreak of flu like there was in that time. And they say when it hits, it can have as great or worse consequences as that one. And there'll be nothing we can do about it. We're helpless. Now, I don't know how God is going to do this one. But as I thought about this pestilence and this disease thing, I couldn't help thinking about the new bioweapons. We as a country are a target right now, as you know. Look at the USS Cole uh, from many hostile nations around the world. Saddam Hussein certainly hates our guts, as we know. And uh, around that time, the U.S. Office of Technology Assessment did a study on how vulnerable are we to something like this and disease when it comes to diseases. Because the third world countries are learning you don't need nukes. You don't need a nuclear bomb to get to another country. And they came up with a scenario that would be so simple to do it. I'm surprised they put this in print. To execute, to just show how vulnerable we, as the almighty U.S. are, to attack in bringing about disease. The scenario was this. They, they estimated that a small private plane of Piper Cub, for example, taken off from Hayward, with 220 pounds of anthrax spores. That's about me. That's a little more than me, the size of me. 220 pounds. That's easy to stick in a Piper Cub. It's just another passenger. Flying over Washington. That was the example they used, Washington, D.C. On a clear, windless night, could trail an invisible, you wouldn't see it, odorless, you wouldn't smell it, mist. Just slowly leak this stuff out the plane as it flies over Washington, D.C. It would kill between one and three million people in Washington, D.C. And the way it would happen, uh, within a day or two, people across the, the city would start having coming down with symptoms of a cold. And they would go to their doctors. And the nurses and the doctors would get it. And before too long, you've got the emergency response personnel and people dying. And it's a horrible death. Now, I mean, that's pretty hard to stop. And imagine coordinating a plane over L.A. and Chicago and New York and Washington, you know. And it scared the government because they found out just how vulnerable we really are. 
the mighty U.S. Now, God is going to judge, get ready, every nation on this earth. And I don't know, but this may be the way he'll use it to judge this country. It's, it's incredible to me that God used Babylon, a godless country, to judge Israel. And you know what modern-day Babylon is? It's Iraq. Would he use Iraq to judge this nation? I don't know. He could. That's just one scenario. We don't know how God is going to do it. But it's amazing to me how unsaved people can read these things and realize that they can happen and still sit and ignore God and pretend that everything's okay. Well, uh, the fourth one is death by the beasts of the earth. And um, we're not too familiar with that in this country. You know, harmful animals are in zoos. Uh, we just saw a, ta- a National Geographic tape the other day about uh, problems they still have in India where uh, once in a while a tiger will just decide to put people on his uh, menu. And they have man-eaters there. They'll, they'll kill 400 people before they can catch them, villagers, you know. Uh, but that's probably the only example we can think of of this in, in modern terms. Here in this country, you know, you'll hear about a, a mountain lion attack up in Folsom or something. I remember a PG&E inspector got bit by a recluse spider in Antioch and died, you know. But this is going to be something entirely different. God is going to remove the, uh, I don't know, the ingrown safety valve he has in wild animals or, or, or animals in general. And they're going to, he says here that they're going to kill people, they're going to attack people. And so they're going to enter into this as well. So there, there it is. It's, it's overpowering. At least it is to me. I, I, I trust it is to you. What's going to happen on the earth here when God, finally, his patience finally runs out, which it will. And my prayer is that there's nobody in this room that doesn't know Jesus. Because the only people that are not going to be here, in fact, they're going to be taken away, are the believers in the Lord Jesus. And we'll close with a, a passage in Second Peter this, this came to me as I was preparing this. It, I love the way God puts it here. It talks about how he conducts himself in judgment. He is so careful. We see earthquakes, we see floods, and one person dies and another doesn't. And we think, well, it was just random. Well, it never is. God's hand is on every individual. He is so careful in judgment. And so it will be when it comes to judging the earth. He is going to take out one by one, he knows who they are, those who are truly saved, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he could do something like that. And he, uh, really this passage is not primarily on the rapture, but if you read it, you'll see that it's, it's really teaching that. And he uses the example of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the flood to show how God faithfully, when he brings judgment on the earth, delivers those who know him first from that judgment. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, 
and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. That's all an if clause. It's all saying, if God was able to do these things, well, here's the conclusion. Then, the, I love this, the Lord knows how. I like that. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Two key prepositions. Deliver out of. He's going to take out of the judgment scene before it comes those who know Jesus Christ. Praise God, huh? But then the unjust, he says under. The preposition there is under. They will be under. Uh, and throughout the book of Revelation, there's this phrase, those who dwell on the earth. And the Greek is really one, one word. It's earth dwellers. Those who nestle down. This is their home. This earth. They're going to be left behind and undergo this. I am so glad that my Lord knows how to take me out of here. I don't know how to get out of here, but he does. Um, wasn't it Philip that said, you know, Lord, we don't know the way. Remember that? And the Lord says, you know where I go and you know, you're going to come where I go. He says that to us. And I, like Philip, I can say, I don't know how to get there, Lord. But, but he told Philip and he tells us, look, you know me. That's all you need to know. I am the way, the truth and the life. And very soon, brothers and sisters, he's going to come and take us to himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we read what you have told us about the things to come, it causes us to tremble. And Lord, as we think of those around us who will not be caught up, but left behind, as it says in this verse, to be left under punishment. Oh, Lord, it, it, it causes us to fear for them. And Lord, we want to tell them to escape before it's too late. That the only way out is through you. So we pray, Lord, that you would burden our hearts to talk about you. Not to be caught up in this world. Help us to see it from your viewpoint, Lord, that little blue marble that is soon to be shaken that is soon to reel to and fro like a drunken man. Help us, Lord, to warn those who are going to be left behind to flee for their lives to the cross of Christ and be saved. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.